Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten, and every fortnight I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I talk to the architect Cade Hayes, co-founder of US architecture studio Dust. We discuss their project, Tuxen Mountain Retreat, a home constructed of rammed earth and located in the heart of the Sonoran Desert in Arizona. The single-storey home is relatively simple in form, with spaces opening out onto the dry and arid surrounding landscape. But it is the soft tones and the rich texture of the rammed earth, one of the oldest building materials in the world, that make this home really special. If you'd like to find out more about dust and about Tucson Mountain Retreat, you can find images and links to further information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Kate. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, George, and I, I want to just uh, thank you uh, on behalf of Dust and uh, Jesus, my business partner, and our great team behind us that uh, you've invited us on to talk about our project. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm very looking forward to um, taking an audio journey to Arizona in the US, um, which is where you're, you're conducting the interview from today, right? So you're based in uh, Tucson, uh, Arizona. Uh, could you maybe, um, you know... The, you know, it's great with this um, podcast, we can sort of travel geographically to people working in architecture, but in different climates. Could you maybe talk a little bit about um, where you're based, Tucson? It's near the, the Mexican border, so it's a very sort of southern state of, of the US. And maybe just sort of tell me a little bit about um, the area that you're kind of operating in and where the house is located. Yes. Uh, th- so Tucson is located in the southwest United States, and it is... Uh, part of the Arizona, the Sonoran Desert, so the Arizona portion of the Sonoran Desert, the Sonoran Desert extends uh, all the way down south to the whole state of Sonora, most of the state of Sonora, Mexico, uh, into Eastern California, and most of the Baja, um, the upper area of uh, Mexico and Baja. Mm -hmm. And... um, where we live in Arizona, it's it's called the Arizona Upland, and it is the coldest part of the Sonoran Desert. And it, and the Sonoran Desert does have many biomes within it. Um, and ours specifically, we call it a desert, but technically scientists actually describe it as a semi-arid tropical thorn scrub forest. And that forest essentially is, is saguaro cacti and Palo Verde trees and so it's a really rich uh, desert um, that it, it has a vast number of different types of plant species I think in the region of the house there's over 630 different plant species in this area mm-hmm. and, and um, so we're in a very lush part of the Sonoran Desert and the house is right in the heart of uh, and abuts the the Saguaro National Park, uh, so it's right in there in the quintessential, studded, you know, postcard example of what the Arizona desert is. Yes, 
Mm. And it's and it's just on the outskirts, is it, of of the of the city of Tucson? It is. It's on the west side of Tucson. It's technically just eleven miles from downtown, but it, mm-hmm. you know it takes about twenty minutes to get there. So it it looks towards the east. You can see the city, the city lights, and yeah, the valley. I find it really interesting just looking up the house and I find myself doing a bit of a sort of Google Earth um, search. Yeah. Um, and yeah, interestingly, what I find interesting, you see the pictures and it's the, the house, it looks like it's in the middle of nowhere and surrounded by cacti and in, in the desert. Um, but then I found this whole area, I think, um, west of Tucson. And it's it's going up to the mountains and this, this, this park region. And there's loads of houses Mm-hmm. All dotted. All of them seem to be equally spaced, but all maybe what five hundred feet from each other. Is, yes. is it in that region? Was I looking in the right area? Y- yes, you are. I, I can't give it away, you know, because it's yeah. a private home. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, a lot of the neighborhoods and the developments in the west, and and I'd say on the outskirts of Tucson, there's um, there's a minimum lot size, and so what they did in this area is. You can put a house on as small as 3.3 acres, but some of the developers were really smart, and so they would split it into, say, 6.5 acres. So you can't put two houses on it. You can't <laughs> split it. And so that's what we landed on. The owner owns 6.3 acres. And so mm-hmm. that's quite a bit of distance between the neighbors. And because the desert's so lush, most... Uh, most people can't see one another in this specific area um, because it's more sparsely populated. Uh, but you can't hear aud- audibly if someone is outside saying have a, having a party or having music. So, And what are these houses? Are they, are they typically all um, like family homes or do they tend to be more weekend retreats because of their location? You know, I'd say most of them are, are probably family homes. Mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't be, I don't know exactly, you know, what version of, or how, how many would be, say, a second home for people. And in our case, this is definitely a second home for the clients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned about being able to hear neighbors. Now, that's one, looks like one important part of the brief here with this house is, was about acoustics. And they've got a music studio um, as part of the home. Um, could you maybe tell me a little bit about who who the owners were, who the clients were in this case, and why the music studio was a key part. Sure. The, uh, so the client's um, now retired. David's now retired, and, and maybe Karen's still working. But the, they're both uh, uh, doctors in the medical field, cancer specialists in various you know, uh, avenues there. He's a, he's a self-declared slide jockey, so he was you know, reading uh, cell samples, basically, in slides. So really meticulous focus mm. on, on the minuscule detail. Um, and he is a really talented classical guitarist. Um, and that's his love for the music, but he also, their, their daughter, Nina, um, is trained in music. And so at the time we were commissioned, she was 15 or 16. Now, I don't know, 20, mid-20s. Um, so she's from what I understand, still pursuing a musical career. So this was one, a way for him to return to his home where he grew up, um, Tucson, and then uh, a way to reconnect to this 
this desert landscape he loved and live in a really close proximity to one of the more pristine sites and, and areas of Tucson, uh, where you really get this quintessential Sonoran desert landscape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and so part of the brief is about having a music studio that's for just for sort of pleasure or is it for recording as well? Is there a practical purpose? It, it is for very much so for pleasure. Uh, but also to have the option, and it was built for Nina to, it's, it's almost built as an heirloom for her to inherit. And I think that's mm-hmm. how, he, did, he didn't summarize it that way, but he, he did talk about her inheritance and having a place for his daughter to go record music. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the daydream of, of having, say, a couple of people in the music recording space um, being able to record live music. That was the first priority of that part of the house, the part of the program. Um, but what we doesn't get talked about a lot uh, because it's not the most beautiful space. Um, I, I'd say it's not the, it's not, it's not not beautiful. It's, it just doesn't have the kind of same atmosphere as the rest. And it's a very dark space. Mm. Um, so, so there's not a lot of photographs of the space, very technical. Um, but the whole house is wired so that someone can say plug in their guitar in the bathroom in the bedroom and someone can be in the recording booth and record that wow okay so so the whole house has this sort of you know circuits of of uh i call them veins but it's just the connectivity so you can record you wake up and you have a epiphany and you just grab your guitar and plug in sounds like the kind of cool place you could hire out to bands for like an album experience of making exactly. it an album in the desert he, he talks about that you know having people come out and, and use this place for you know a month on end or something so i don't know if that'll ever get put into place it became more personal after the dream became reality yeah well if you could tell him i'll, I'll come out and record a podcast episode out there and test it out that sounds good <laughs> that sounds good yeah um so, I mean, we're going to go through the house and I mean, there's loads of things to talk about here about this, the design and the feel of the spaces and the construction techniques as well. Uh, but yeah. maybe if we could just start with the kind of big idea and where that came from, because obviously the key headline here is its location and where it is and its setting and the fact that it's built out of rammed earth and that's the predominant material here. Where yeah. was the idea coming from? Where was the drive to be doing something this different and this ambitious? Bearing in mind, it was seven years ago as well. It was, yeah, we finished it in, uh, we started in 2008 and finished in 2011. So, yeah, yeah exactly. Ten years ago when we finished. Um, so I think I'd, I'd have to start with the story really about the land again. And, you know, we, we talked about maybe the more larger context of the Sonoran Desert. And then this being, you know, a quintessential postcard of, our ver- our portion of the Arizona uplands region of this desert. Um, the site is really unique and, and it's, you know, for us, it's a little bit of maybe say dumb luck. Um, you know, the client had this beautiful piece of land and um, it has an arroyo that runs from the, um, it runs from the Northwest, sorry, the South, west to the northeast downhill towards tucson and this is a major animal corridor um, and they're setbacks and it's not really a flood issue but they're setbacks to protect 
protect this, they call it a riparian area, because water flows, but usually not on the surface. And then to the north and south of this property, um, on the land, is a, a two, uh, two rock outcroppings. And those are really important to set the, the site. And, and really, you know, 6.3 acres is a lot of land for a lot of people, but there were really only two places with setbacks, restrictions, protections. Those peaks, the rock outcroppings are protected. And, you know, we landed the house in such a way where we sited it, where our first conversations were, the rock outcroppings already create the space, and let, let's let those be the extent of our living space. And that's how we describe it to the client. There's the end of your living room. Mm-hmm. And um, so that would be sort of the foundation of our approach was in relation to the context. Um, and, and then the big idea is really this, this house embodies how we approach all of our projects. And one is responding to the land and the place, the sun, the climatic conditions, and how do we respect uh, and try to protect and be stewards of the land around us and, and really minimizing the footprint. And no matter what you do, every project as an architect has a certain um, set of you know requirements and requests and, and forces upon it. And in this case, we really just approached it because we had the space and the land provided. There's a way one can approach building in the desert where you, it's about orientation and solar control and harnessing passive breezes, which is all passive stuff. And and, um, Mm -hmm. we learned it in school, but we got to really put it to the test and uh, test it for ourselves because we both had worked at firms before and you know, um, very good firms, but it wasn't always part of the conversations. And, and, you know, some of the projects may be urban. They you can't really respond in the same ways or certain sites don't afford the freedoms that we had here. And um, so the big idea was to get out of the way and, um, and, and let this house engage the atmosphere of the desert, which is what the clients wanted. They bought this land because they loved it. And if we just put something there that destroyed it and didn't engage it, then, you know, what was the point, I guess? Um, And so that was the big idea. And, you know, we could get into the passive solar stuff where, you know, we we oriented the building in in an east-west direction, minimizing East and West facades. There's no windows on the east. There's one on the west. We planted a bunch of trees, and and really, uh, light is balanced um, north and south. And the deep overhangs on the south act as a good shading device. Um, but also, that's the direction that uh, the prevailing breezes in Tucson come from, predominantly the southeast, and so they act as wind scoops. And then we get this diurnal. Um, airflow up and down the mountain. So we have this great airflow that we just try to harness all of these elements with this project. And that's where the foundation of the design started. So the big idea wasn't, you know, here's this rammed earth stroke in the desert. Um, that rammed earth piece came about because it it makes sense um, here. It's a, you know, it's, it's a material that works well in the desert and I think the materiality is important to us, especially because we do build uh, 
you know, and it's important to any architect. Um, but we look at influence, the things that influence us are, you know, the vernacular buildings that came before us. And I would say we didn't invent anything here. Um, it, it's all these answers were here, um, way before us. Native indigenous peoples knew how to build with the materials they had, the local materials available to them within a certain range. Um, and that's how we thought about the approach. And then um, you know, the client could afford, say, a rammed earth house. And in that, you know, we, we always look and try as, a, as an office, and, and we discuss this, and I think it's maybe elusive at times, that how does a building feel that it always belongs and how does it grow out of the site that it doesn't feel foreign? And I think, you know, if you put all those together in a, in a pot, that becomes the recipe, the ingredients for the soup that, you know, we approach mm -hmm. this project. It's interesting that you say, you know, you haven't invented anything new here. But if we looked at it in the context of what I'm guessing is is in the area, taking this approach, this passive environmental approach um, and this approach to materials, I'm imagining is radically different from how most other properties on these plots of land would have approached it. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And, was, and were the clients, was that something that was important to the clients, the, the passive no. approach? They didn't ask for it. Yeah. So. And at being a new practice, they they didn't know what they were letting themselves in for. They didn't, them. and yeah, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's funny because we've we've had a we've had a client come to us and we built it. Um, it's it's a project that's off off the grid and it's there's no air conditioning, so that really put our feet to the fire. And he understood that he has to open and close and operate his house in a way that most people wouldn't. And I I mm -hmm. would say going back to these clients, they didn't ask for it, and their house is air conditioned. And they probably don't use it the way it could be used. And, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not, it is a vacation home, so they're not here enough, maybe. Um, but as, a, as an architect, I think we should always strive to do that thing that's free. It didn't cost more for us to design that passively. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if power is out, then cross ventilation is free you know shade is free um i mean it's not you you pay for an overhang but you know mm. uh, so there, there's some of that so yeah they, you know in the winter the house doesn't really need that much heating because the the heating is you know uh, solar heat gain to to the large south facing windows um, with the exception of the music space and then in the summer, there are times that, you know, it's, it's extremely hot and um, you just have to have air conditioning if you want that comfort that we're used to. I would say that it, it's always these things we learn in school and then we should just trust that they work. But when you get to do it for yourself and then you get to experience it, then it really clicks that, hey, this is worthwhile and it does work. So when we were photographing the house, it was August and it was 104 outside. And I'm sorry, it was 102 outside and it was 84 degrees inside with the air conditioner off. So it's almost a 20, 20 degree temperature drop just just with mm -hmm. shade and a lot of insulation yeah. in the at the ceiling. No mechanical yeah. intervention. So that was a nice 
And we're going to talk. Um, we're going to talk quite a lot about the rammed earth because it comes back as when we're talking about when we when we kind of travel through the house and the internal finishes and the external appearance as well. Um, I just wonder if just for a listener that might not know what rammed earth is, um, could you describe it and how it's been used here? I I will attempt to. There's experts in this material, so I'll I'll do my best. <laughs> Uh, rammed earth is one of the oldest building materials on earth and, and I, uh, part of the Great Wall of China is built from rammed earth. So there's there's an apartment complex in China uh, that's round, circular, and it's rammed earth and it's still occupied today. It's beautiful. And so it is. it does exist here uh, near the Casa Grande ruins. There's the, probably the closest example. Uh, but what it is, is it's basically formed walls uh, similar to concrete formwork, um, but you take a mix of sand uh, that's now engineered, that used to be pulled from the site. Our rammed earth was not pulled from the site because Arizona, for those that know or don't know, it's really one big rock. And so wherever we're digging, there's like a very high chance that you're gonna hit rock. And so to to do this effectively, it has to be um, free of, biodegradable materials, so sticks and, and grasses have to be eliminated. Also, the size of aggregate needs to be consistent. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we got our soil from 20 miles away. It's already engineered. The engineers understand it, and there's, it's been tested. Um, so they bring it to the site, and they mix uh, uh, cement with it now. So traditionally, it wouldn't have cement. Um, and uh, it's mixed with cement and this uh, engineered fill sands and water and you mix it with a you know it's it's very low tech mixing it's on the ground with a skid steer in a bucket and two guys with water hose and you just mix it over and over and you put it uh, in formwork in 12 inch lifts so 12 inches of loose fill into a formwork that's 18 inches wide typically up to uh, the, one of the thickest walls in the Tucson Mountain Retreat is three feet thick, um, and on the west it's two feet thick, and that is for solar uh, heat gain reasons. Um, but you you add this 12 inches in, and then you compact it with pneumatic tampers. Historically, it would have been hand tamped, which would have taken much more time. So now we have that technology, and um, it basically compresses the earth into these layers where you get the striations. Uh, almost like cutting through the strata of the earth. And uh, you just repeat that over and over till you get to the top and um, you move the formwork up. And eventually after four months of process, we were done with the walls. Um, so four months just to be building up the wall in, in these yeah. layers. And, and that, so that's giving, you said the striation, these are the horizontal lines that you see on the outside of right. the building. But there's also vertical lines as well that you can see. Is that coming from the that's formwork? That's the formwork, yeah. And you'll yeah. see, so th- you'll see some really refined rammed earth now, um, where it's you, it, you can eliminate that formwork, uh, the the evidence of the formwork with uh, really fine carpentry. Um, in this case, it's standard concrete formwork. And and for you, is that important to be expressing that formwork? Was that a conscious choice, or was that a budget? We like thing? it. We like it. Um, we haven't been asked to eliminate it yet. Um, I think there's there's a a beauty in telling the story of the making, and so you know, I, it 
it never offended me. Uh, it doesn't offend Jesus or the team. It's, I feel like it's it's part of the process. So you know, mm. but I've seen the really clean stuff, and it's still beautiful. It's just more monolithic. It's all mm. monolithic, so it's just less less history. And three feet thick, some of these walls. So it's um, you need a lot of space to. Uh, to do this right. kind of construction this is the perfect location yeah. for it and then um and then in terms of construction wise you're coming out of the rock then of arizona and then the base of the building that's all a concrete base that then so the ram death doesn't actually touch the ground in, at any point so right guessing. right so in our we you know we built those walls in 2008 nine and at that time the local ram death crew was using about eight to ten percent cement and like I said it's a loose low-tech kind of volume ratio on the ground um, and I think now because of all the ad mixes they are adding and strength and I know that one of the local guys you know there's waterproofing issues for some projects they're adding a lot more cement and a lot more waterproofing mm. Um, so ours is in this middle realm where if you look at some of the early rammed earth projects around here, it was 3% cement. Um, but I think they're getting up to like 12 to 18 even. And so it's becoming more and more like concrete, which the higher cement content, the lower the R values or, you know, the U value, mm. the U value for mass. Um, but uh, yeah, I may have lost track of your question there. Uh, well, you mentioned there's a local um, rammed earth team. Yeah. Are they are they kept busy then locally? Are there, are there a lot of other types of buildings using this method? There's, there's a few. Um, there's a few companies in town. Um, there's actually three right now, and um, at various levels. One would I would say is very small, maybe a single, a guy that leads sort of um, teaching exercises for smaller projects, mm -hmm. and then another guy who who leads bigger projects also, but it's a lot of volunteer labor. And then there's one company uh, called Pure Build, and they're they're more set up with the crew that can, can go and deliver. And they they do projects in Tucson and around Tucson, even in Phoenix, but there's another um, rammed earth contractor in Phoenix. So it, there's not many, um, mm. but there are. And, and I would say why there's not that many is because it's so... The material itself is inexpensive, but the cost of making the wall is very expensive because of the labor, mm. labor and time. Well, you've got a, this team of two doing the mixing and pouring 12-inch layers for four months. Well, that was a team um, of 11. It was only two guys, wow. two guys on the ground mixing the mix, but there was 11 people in the air com compacting yeah. for, four, for wow. four months. Yeah. So I think, I think total there was 11 to 13 people pushing that rammed earth at, at the Tucson mm -hmm. Mountain Retreat. So there's a lot of stories to be told of each of those layers that have gone into this right. build, I'm yeah. sure. And so I think, you know, with that, what it, what it's become, unfortunately, is a, it's a, a, a boutique material, and it's very, it's very expensive, and most people can't afford it. So I would say, mm -hmm. I don't know if we got there you know, that opportunity at the right time that the client really wanted to have it, that was willing to pay for it. Um, but we get lots of inquiries for it and rarely we get to use it again. Mm. So.
project is called the Mountain um, Retreat, and one aspect that I really like about it is this this romantic notion of the retreat. And I'm going to refer back to this Google Earth um, search that I was doing last night. Um, but looking at this location, there's this. What I love is this journey, and you've talked about it before. You talk about it on your website about the progression and the journey to arrive at the building being as important as the destination. And I love this idea of this change in scale that seems to happen on the sort of macro, micro, and, and larger scale. So from the city, it's Tucson's a pretty big and and densely populated city. From what I can see, I've I've never been. But then gradually these sort of tentacles go out from, from the city. You get the kind of industrial areas and the main sort of avenues motorway through. And suddenly you're then going into these smaller veins that then lead out into the desert. From what I can gather from the pictures is this house is at the end of one of those. So your journey gradually progresses if you're going by car until you reach um, the point. But then you talked about how intentionally you've the car is then parked about 400 feet away from the house. Can you tell me a little bit about that, this, this journey then from that point and how important that is to the design? Right. Yeah. As you describe it, it is spot on. The Tucson is, is, I would say a typical American West city where we rely on the car heavily and um, it's not necessarily dense, as as one would understand density in an urban you know environment um and so we are on the tentacle the edges of periphery of the west side of tucson and as you leave the city you know there is a major u.s highway i-10 you have to cross from most destinations in tucson and and you slowly ascend up into the hills and the, the streets get narrower and narrower until it turns into a dirt lane and then you arrive at this house. Um, our, our desire to move the car away was also part of the client's request of, you know, their original prompt was wanting to engage this, this landscape that, you know, I, I want to be as close to as, as I can. And for us, getting the car away from the house afforded an opportunity, a couple of opportunities we have to drill a well on the site for water because there's no public utility there. There's electric, mm-hmm. there's electric, but there's not, there's not sewer and water. So everyone has a well. And, and there's a story about the water as well that we can talk about, you know. Um, so there's this land and this place when we arrived there was already disturbed because the drilling rig for the well, which is 600 feet deep, um, kind of tore up this area. And so, by locating the car there, we get it away from the house. You leave the car, you turn your back to the city, and uh, you you know now you're really engaging with the desert. I mean, you're walking through it almost as if you were going on a hike. Um, you hear the the crunch of the desert floor beneath your feet, and then you arrive at these these entry steps, which um, you know we we probably. Maybe it's a bad metaphor, but we we often talk about how this is where the desert and the building meet or shake hands, and um, there's a lot of inspiration for that entry sequence, um, and and really the main one was the the rock outcroppings to the north and south of the house that we describe as the extents of the living room, where how they dissolve into the landscape and the rock starts to break up, 
and and life finds its way in these small cracks and grows out of it and that was the goal and the intent of slowing you down from the car and even if it's subconscious that the sound of of walking through the desert and then the smells because mm. depending on the type of year or the time of year um, you know the smells are, are magical um, especially in the monsoon season and so you slow your body down and then you engage these steps which really force one to focus and and I think I think about it as a rock climbing exercise where you're doing something so intently that everything else goes away and that was mm. kind of maybe you know the transition of going into your house and opening a, you know a 1200 pound door um with the sound of a bank vault that there's this whole sequence of engaging the body mm -hmm. and these steps i mean i imagine every journey that you make up them is you can find a different route every single time right it's a very um is it a totally random scattering of these cube type shapes or was there is there logic behind the madness there's some madness in it for sure we uh we worked a long time on those and there is a main path there's a main path um and the story goes a little bit that, you know, we do have codes and, and more strict codes in some countries, but they're, to get through the permitting process, this was supposed to have a handrail on it. Um, but when the, when the inspector came out and saw it, he said, one, he was impressed uh, about the beauty of it. And he, there was a conversation with Jesus. I wasn't on site that day, but he, he basically told us, I don't see this as the entry. The entry is around the corner. This is art. <laughs> don't don't put the handrail. And so, you know, we also have rules in, in Tucson where you can use vegetation as a guardrail, even if it's a cacti. Like, even if you fall into it and get a needle in your eye, it's acceptable. And mm -hmm. so the intent was that these steps were, were revegetated uh, with the with the bush we call a creosote but it's technically a chaparral and it is this plant that gives off this amazing aroma uh, and it's uh, there's a name for it after the after it rains in the desert it's called petrichor and it's the smell of the desert after the rain um, and it's the smell is much more poetic than, than that statement um, but that was our intent is to plant aromatics so as you move up this um, entry that uh, you you basically are engaging that sense of smell every time you move up and down. And so there is, to get back to your question, there is a main path, but there's also this playfulness that we find ourselves, we're avid you know, explorers of the desert, and we often find ourselves in arroyos or canyons or washes, and, and you're often hopping from rock to rock. And so mm -hmm. children love this, obviously. But there is, if you look closely, you'll see the main path. It's the one without gaps. But yeah, it, it took some work to get there. Yeah, it makes me think of kind of playing on the rocks in mountain streams, you know, when you're building dams and things, um, yeah. that that kind of feel, or big sort of boulders at the beach where you can kind of climb in and out. Yeah. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's it has to be sort of seen to be understood, I think, the uh, the steps. But I, I agree with the uh, the inspector or whatever his title <laughs> was. Of it, it's, it is an artwork. It shouldn't have an, a handrail yeah. on it. So he, yeah. he made a very good call there. Right. Um, 
So, yeah, so we're making that kind of progression of this journey and then going going up the steps. But then you arrive at the, the form of the, the main building that can be best described as, I mean, in terms of program, it's three blocks, the way you've devised it up. You've got the, the music studio, the living space with the kitchen, and then one block with two bedrooms. And all of them have a different aspect. Could you maybe describe, talk through the sort of design and the ideas of the first arrival and this... Um, was it a thousand pound door that you mentioned? I think you're talking about weight there in terms of the heaviness yeah, of the yeah. of the door. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at the, if you were to look at the foundation plan or, or think of this building as a ruin in you know 200 years, that you, what you would see is a single wall that snakes its way through the landscape, and mm. and that single wall we use that single wall again. One of them was a passive reason for shared walls that the, the western the western space protects. The, the ones on the east from from the summer sun and the setting sun um, but also for an economy of means to to wrap this rammed earth wall all the way through the project um, it divides three zones and um, one of the reasons uh, that 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 sort of evolved into the three distinct zones is that the, the clients have very different sleeping patterns. So David is, is someone that's more of a nocturnal animal that plays his guitar very late in the morning, and um, and his wife sort of has a regular schedule. And so there was this desire and request that we didn't have any hallways, and that there was sound isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there was just a question of you know. We, it goes along with removing the car and walking to the house. You know, are you comfortable walking outside? And they love the idea. And so, you know, circulation from each space is an exterior circulation. So you enter each each block um, separately. Right. And so. And. Yeah, and there's the, so the central block is the uh, the living space with the kitchen, and that's the that's the only space here that's that's actually double aspects um so that's open on both sides but like i like how you described and it is true in the plan you've got this the wall that just just basically snakes across the whole house it's a never-ending wall and then the gaps in the kind of u-shape that it creates is then glazed so it creates this kind of seamless inside out look in the living space um on the main kind of glazed side it's that you've got that huge overhang that's facing south um but what I love about these spaces, the rammed earth is just, it's there expressed internally as well as externally. What does that kind of feel like in the space? What's the texture like to be t- touching that wall as a living space? It's amazing. It's amazing to watch people that haven't seen the materials. They usually do walk up and touch it. Um, mm. you know, it's a hard material and it's sealed um, on one side. Um, but I would say the thing that's, uh, unknown unless you're in a rammed earth building is that you can almost hear the weight and and what I mean by that it's it has a different audible sense than most buildings mm. you go into and I know we're in the desert and it's more silent and, uh, but yeah it's it's a heavy beautiful warm color warm material and it feels it feels good um, mm. and so to be in that in that living space is really um, and especially, I'd say that all of the spaces have a unique characteristic, um, but that one especially, that becomes the Ramada, especially when it's opened. 
And when it's opened, when you slide those doors open on both sides, when the weather's right, which is honestly, I say, about five months of the year, you can really do that here. Mm. Our, our rough season is uh, is summer, so we don't really we get cold, but it's tolerable, especially in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it's this. I think there's this luxury and, and dignity of this space, and then when you open it. It's it's like being at a a park with a you know a ramada, but it, there's just a different sentiment to it because it it's somewhat abstract. Like how is this a mm-hmm. living room? Because the desert is so close. And, you know, yeah. we, during construction and when the doors are open, I mean, birds will you know pass through, spiders. <laughs> you know, the creatures love it. Um, so. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to describe. It, it's like artful living. Maybe yeah. the best way to say it. And it's so. It's just so elegantly simple as well, because because of the construction method, most of the surfaces are just expressed as as it's been constructed out the round earth. The ceiling is a very kind of neutral white flows into out, and then I suppose the other dominant part is the floor. Is that concrete the same as the kind of plinth? Yeah, the, the house. it is concrete. And, and, and those moves you described, I uh, appreciate your observation because I forget some of those those details of, and how to explain <laughs> them well. But, um, <laughs> that, you know, our intention was to get out of the way. And I may have said that earlier and, and, and let the desert be the focus. And so, you know, this, this material is amazing and beautiful and rich. But also when you're in there, you, it does fade to the background. And um, that's a really nice, it, for me, thinking about it from the inside out, that's what we wanted to mm. happen. And I imagine these bedrooms must be amazing in terms of you're talking about the sort of feel of the weight um, of this rammed earth. Again, the bedroom's extremely simple. They're kind of sanctuary mm-hmm. type rooms. The where you've used the glass, it's floor to ceiling, wall to wall. Um, what does that feel like acoustically? Does it does the rammed earth dampen the sound? in the space it's very dead it's it's not uh there's no echo and um the the house is very silent because the music recording aspect you know controlled the mechanical sound so when the air is on you don't hear it or feel it it's at that perimeter edge detail um Mm -hmm. and so you know the bedrooms also we're thinking about cross ventilation there and so you can crack or open that that south facade, pull in the air, and then the, the, the entries are also glass with transom. So you get a little bit of balanced light, and then we have, uh, we've wrapped what is, say, the, the bathroom core. Um, you know, these bedrooms are identical. They ask for, mm-hmm. you know, no hierarchy, you know, in the two bedrooms. So they're identical, mirrored, with the ba- bathroom core in the middle, and that's wrapped with the shusugi bond, which is a, a charred, um, Spanish cedar, and mm-hmm. it's it's a Japanese method of preserving wood, um, and it it what it what it lends is that material. You know the bedrooms, as you said, it is a place for sleeping and and watching the sunrise. Uh, but you're not seeing the sun from the east; you're actually seeing the sunlight wash the rock outcropping to the south. And so you wake up with this soft, soft light washing over the, the landscape. And then, this, as I was mentioning, that core of Shusugiban, at night, it's just this black infinity. 
Um, mm. But also when you open those doors, you still spe- smell the Spanish cedar. So the rooms have this aromatic scent, um, rich textures that complement each other, and um, it's a it's a really calm place to mm. you know, t- to sleep. And so we really thought of those as how do you make this cozy nest? But yeah. Also, you know, and just tiny little detail, but like in those rooms, there's artwork that's hanging on the walls, and I mean. A lot of pressure, I think, in a space like this. It's got. It's going to have to be good. But I've noticed that um, it's suspended. The artwork's suspended from the ceiling, so by a sort of thin, thin cables. Very sort of geeky, practical question. But is that a reason for like not fixing into the rammed earth wall? It, the reason we did that is so that there's a gap at the perimeter of the ceiling. If, if you look mm-hmm. at the details, and it exists everywhere, and it it does a lot of things. It offers. That's where we have air supply and air return. It's hidden in a one-inch gap. And then we have a hidden art track uh, up there. And the reason we wanted that flexibility is it's really typical gallery uh, track lighting or track uh, hanging. Um, the owner has an extensive art collection, so he wanted to revolve revolve the art without putting a nail in the rander. Mm. So when you put a, a nail into an earthen material, if you want to move a painting and you have a nail, it's best to not remove that nail. It's best to drive it all the way in. Mm. Because when you remove it, it pulls out more material than, you know, it's not like unscrewing something out of a, a stud mm. wall or a drywall or, you know, another material. So um, it was really about flexibility for that art. Mm. I need to get one myself one of these tracks because in the, the ground floor of my house, that's it's a house that's sort of built in the 1980s, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's solid concrete. And if, if I put in one screw, it takes about half an hour of drilling. Uh-huh. And that's if you're lucky and you miss some of the metal rods inside. And so it's like the most stressful thing ever, putting one picture up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look yeah. these up. I'll send you a link. <laughs> yes, please. Um, and, yeah, so we've got these... Um, I like the idea that these these bedrooms are democratic as well. There's a really nice balance to them of just really clean layout of these two rooms that don't feel like boxes. They're squarish rooms, but the corners are kind of open because of the way you've laid it out and then the en-suites between. But then between um, between the, the two principal blocks of the bedrooms and the living space, there's this kind of secret core type area. I'm imagining because it doesn't appear in the pictures and things, this is probably where loads of stuff is stored um but also there's there's a spiral stair that leads up to the terrace and i mean the terrace just looks incredible i mean sunset viewing parties drinks shouting at neighbors 500 feet away and what could tell me a little bit about the terrace yeah it's a it was a request by the clients um you know to get up and see i suppose to get up and see 360 degree views of the of the environment is is a, a desirable thing. I think he wanted a place to go look at the stars and have a you know a nightcap. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's a dumb waiter there, so you can send your drinks and your snacks up right there under the table. And uh, it's a nice place to be. We I think the 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 really special moment of getting is the ascension through the spiral stair, which, you know, it is, it's got this, uh, water jet cut pattern that was inspired by, uh, the skeleton of a cactus, uh, the prickly pear. Mm-hmm. 
and say uh, uh, the wing of a cicada, the clear wing with the, the the ribs, the structure of the cicada. And so, what what we get is this dappled light that passes through the staircase. It's just really beautiful, and it it does wash into a, a powder room and um, into a little office in there. So that's how you access that, which you you call the a lot of utility space, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a, it's a nice place to be. I I prefer being on the ground personally at the at the patio and the you know where the fire pit is because I mm -hmm. feel I feel that connection um, personally more. But that's just my own thing. So. Have you spent time in the house then? I've stayed in the house a handful of times. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what what's it what's it like to stay there? You know, I think it's it's pretty special to be able to stay in a house that you spent so much time and, and blood sweat and tears trying to get everything perfect and right and you know there's always flaws but um, I would say it feels I've been in I've been in houses that make me feel uptight or like I need to clean immediately because there's something out of place and I would say this this house feels relaxed and calm and mm -hmm. I, I think you know, it's again. It's a little bit abstract because because of the vast expanse and the proximity of you know the desert is one step away. And you know, ideally, I would have a house like this. But I live in town in an old bungalow, you know, turn of the century. Um, but I don't have that expanse of land in front of me. Um, so I think that one of the more memorable moments is sleeping in the bedroom, just mm. feeling that yeah, that vastness nearby and waking up with the sunlight and you mentioned that there's this natural um animal corridor that actually runs through the site what kind of creatures are we talking about here then like do they come up to the house oh yeah um many coyotes deer rabbits snakes yeah tarantulas scorpions um a couple of gila monsters i don't know if you know the audience knows what those are but i don't know what they are you're gonna have to explain <laughs> that one <laughs> A Gila monster, but there's a lot of lizards out here, and, and actually this area has a really high concentration of whiptail lizards, which they kind of dance their tail dances and hypnotizes their prey. Ooh. So it's really cool. Yeah. But they're not they're not poisonous. They're really cute. <laughs> uh, but there is this poisonous lizard that's home. Its home is in the Sonoran Desert, um, and it's it's usually yellow and black. I think there's some orange ones, but it's pretty slow moving. It it appears. I've never tested this, and I don't know much about them. And you don't see them often, but they're very poisonous. And what they do is they'll latch onto you and just, I think they just pump poison until you die, basically. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a lockjaw kind of thing. But, um, you know, if you stay away from them, they're not going to, you know. <laughs> do they have a first aid kit in the kitchen? They might. They should, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of animals here. I'd say this is one of the, we saw also because we build you know we're there every day um and so we saw so many of these like i would say i would call them national geographic moments <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know like uh, a whip a whip tail i mean sorry there's a sonoran coach whip and um it's a pink snake that's very fast there's also a black version called a black racer and I mean, it was trying to get in the house and during construction, and it just—it was relentless of just sort of yeah. harassing us. Um, but you know, hearing the cry of a rabbit 
and then really you know that sounds like a dead like a crying baby but seeing a snake trying to eat a rabbit like right mm. 10 feet from where we're building and coyotes chasing things down the fence line of where our construction yeah. was so yeah there i think higher up you'll get some wild cats and mountain lions desert tortoises um you're mentioning actually about the construction we've talked about the construction process a bit but in terms of your involvement um what was your role here in this project other than the design well we built it uh so jesus and myself this was as we as we started our firm we you know we, we started with this design build notion that if we can build it and the circumstances are right then we'll do it and so um we were basically hired out and subbed out you know the concrete and the rammed earth but most of the finished work uh we did and so the two of you no with the crew and so yeah we, we, our at that time our our office was just us two but we had and it was the recession you know 2007 is when we mm -hmm. really kicked this off 2008 and um there were a few of our friends were uh, willing to join us because the architecture world you know wasn't great and mm -hmm. people people had more time on their hands and so we had a crew on our team of i think we had seven or nine people at the time on the construction crew mm -hmm. and then when we finished that project you know everyone kind of disperses and then we pick up another project and we'll, we'll hire more people so at that yeah. time yeah sort of ebbs and flows with every project so a real learning curve then of first project setting up practice but then also building the thing as well yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of naivety there. Like, yeah, we could do this. <laughs> and it was quite, you know, it's quite a big house for the first one to, yeah. you know, to cut your teeth on. So it's 3,600 square feet uh, interior, but uh, under the roof, it's about, I think, 6,600 with, the, you know, mm -hmm. the shape. So. so what kind of stuff are you working on now? Have you got any interesting commissions that are sort of challenging you in other directions, different materials? Yeah. We do. We we just wrapped the house, a little casita in uh, Marfa, Texas, like the home of Donald Judd, um, and we're working on um, several houses across the American West, um, and a couple of. We're fortunate to have uh, new opportunities uh, arising. We're working on a an eco resort in Aruba, which is you know a nice new challenge, and and we're actually just signed a contract for a small uh, master plan for another one in, in far west Texas um, near the border as well. And so that's it's in its early phase. We haven't even put pencil to paper. And then we're working on a project for um, the Audubon Society, which is a visitor center. So we got, you know, we're still doing residential, but we're getting our, our foothold into some more public and cultural work. What is the Audubon Society? The Auto the Autobahn Society is a, a birding society. Ah, okay. Yeah, and maybe worldwide, but it's definitely an American facility. There's usually an Autobahn Society in every city, and, and so we actually built a pavilion for them, and finished it in 2017, I think. And um, so there's this corridor. There's an animal corridor uh, where it's it's the last sighting and, and there's a jaguar in Arizona and it's near the US-Mexico border in a town called Patagonia but it's also the, the most northern place that a specific hummingbird 
moves to the United States, and it's mm-hmm. called the Vi- the Violet Crowned Hummingbird. And um, there's people that come from all over the world to see this hummingbird, <laughs> and so they come here and take pictures. And yeah, so that's what right. They're re- re-envisioning their place. See, there's me. I was thinking Autobahn Society. I thought it was an appreciation yeah. for German motorways or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is proper architecture brutalism or something. Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, Kate, I'm going to ask you the, um, the three questions that I ask all of my guests, um, starting with the first one of what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home? My... I, the, the thing that most annoys me is the connection to the garden. It doesn't exist really well. And um, I, I said it's like living or experiencing homes that you design and you think about this connection to outside and and that flow and circulation and a relaxed, you know, atmosphere of that. It doesn't exist in my home. And I live in a very urban part of Tucson, maybe the most walkable small neighborhood, very historic. But these houses, they're, they're double wall brick, you know, bungalows that, you know, the style was imported from somewhere back east and who knows where it originated, but it all was after the train arrived and it was a traditional railroad uh, housing neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So this is where the railroad workers lived. Um, and then it was added on to. So it's, it's a small property and it's a small house. And I think that's the only thing that really bugs me. Mm-hmm. But. Um, and if you could then describe one house that you visited that's really inspired you and, and tell me why. Yeah. I think there's probably several I could touch on. I think the one that's... The one that most sticks out at the moment, if I'm answering... It's, it's a... My wife and I took a trip three years ago to Japan and she found this 300-year-old farmhouse to rent. And um, and it was in the mountains, and it was, you know, they said the next week that we wouldn't be able to be there because they have to close it down because of how much snow they were getting, but, you know, rice field outside. It was you know, traditional Japanese home, farmhouse, and it was, it was something about the light and atmosphere and, and the fire, and I think that is one of those memories that just sticks with you, mm. you know? And, and it was it was old, so there's that history, and I would say it was well taken care of for how old it was, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the finest example of anything, you know. And I couldn't tell you that there was an architect behind it, but mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's uh, was really it's really uh, meaningful moments. To, we try to stay in as many old, you know, traditional Japanese homes as we could there. Thank, thank goodness for, you know, things like Airbnb to have that opportunity, mm. you know. So. And if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? I would choose Dust. You're not allowed to choose yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed to choose myself. <laughs> Why not? Um... Wow, it has to be a person alive. No, no, no. Maybe, maybe I could say Rudolf Schindler. And, and, and I'm a real fan of his King's Roadhouse, mostly. Mm-hmm. So you know, but 
I could say, you know, I'd like Francis Carey to design my house. I'd like, you know, my friends to design my house. <laughs> but we know the true answer is you'd like dust. <laughs> I, would. I would. Even if I didn't get to work on it, I think it would be great. Yeah. 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 Well, on that note, um, okay, thank you very much for joining me. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, finding out more about you and about dust and, um, and about the house. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you. We're humbled to be here and I appreciate your, your including dust in your podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about dust, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. If you like homes that are nestled in desert-like landscapes, you might be interested to listen to episode 20, where I talk to Carl Gurgis about his project, Villa Champs. You can find the link to listen to the episode at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.